0: Hello everybody, it's Friday and I'm Robert Douglas to bring you the next episode of Deploy Friday. So once again, I would admonish you to check in that code, push it out to the cloud. It's fine, nothing bad will happen. Friday is the best day to deploy, trust me. And I want to introduce the guests that we have today. We have two guests from a brand name tech company that you'll all know, PayPal. They run the world's finances. And uh, I'd like to welcome Shruti Kapoor and Mark Stewart, who are both on the engineering team at PayPal. Hello, hello. We're gonna talk about GraphQL. Now we've had a GraphQL episode about a half a year ago, but I found it was so interesting and there's so much potential for talking about modern development paradigms that I wanted to do another episode and here it is today. So with that, Let's get to some more uh, detailed introductions. Shruti, would you like to tell us who you are, where you are, and what you do?
1: Sure. Hey, everyone. My name is Shruti Kapoor. I am a senior software engineer at PayPal. I've been working at PayPal for the last three years. It's been amazing. Um, we, at PayPal, we use a lot of these technologies that we're going to talk about today, GraphQL, JavaScript. Um, I live in San Jose. It is almost 10 AM here, and I am active in the brain.
0: Active in the brain, thanks to this magic substance called coffee, right?
2: Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> How about you, Mark? Uh, yeah, so uh, Director of Engineering at PayPal. Um, so I lead a team that's responsible for our JavaScript, iOS, and Android SDKs. Um, so if you ever you know, integrate PayPal onto your website or your app, you uh, use our team's SDKs. So... Uh, Yeah, we use GraphQL for everything, though. Uh, It powers all of our web and mobile experiences and SDKs. So, yep, we have a lot to say about GraphQL.
0: Fantastic. Then let's start right away with the obvious question for anybody who might not know already. What is GraphQL? Shruti, you want to take it?
1: Sure. So uh, GraphQL in a technical terms is a query language for your API. What that basically means is it provides you a way to uh, call your API and get the data that you need. Um, Just like how in a REST API you'd have like a get or a post endpoint, and then you do like a curl command and pass in your query fields and you'll get the data that you want. Similarly, in GraphQL, you have an endpoint. The difference is that you only have one endpoint, so everything you need, you need to send it to that one endpoint. And because you have the one endpoint, you need to specify more additional fields, like you need to specify if you're passing in a query or a mutation, and you do that as part of the curl command as well. So behind the scenes, it's actually just like a just like an HTTP API. So you can use curl to uh, get your data, um, but in technical terms, it provides you a way for asking for data. It's an alternative to REST APIs,
0: gRPCs. Wow, it's like you practiced that answer and it answered several <laughs> of the questions that I might've had as a follow-up. For example, can GraphQL, it's it's called a query language, but it's actually, it, it, it's a query language like SQL, like it's both for grabbing data and for mutating operations, right? So basically you can tell the system in the back end to change things.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting thing. So oftentimes when you think of GraphQL, we think of the QL means Query language and we think of uh, SQL, but it's actually not like, you know, insert into the database or like select star from the database. So we're not actually querying the database. We're querying the API, which is a common uh, myth that pop- people often have. Um, you could use GraphQL to query your database. There are libraries out there that help to query the, the database itself, but the idea is that you're using GraphQL to query your API.
0: Okay, that seems like a very significant um, mental shift to make. So in making that mental shift, since I've already gotten stuck on the mutating operations, um, does GraphQL have any of like the authorization uh, aspect of mutation in there? Or is that all just off to the, you know, API level? Like, can I say like, delete Robert Douglas, delete Robert Douglas from GraphQL? Can I say that, can I express that?
1: Mark, do you yeah, want to I, answer that? Should have
2: yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll take it. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, GraphQL out of the box doesn't really handle, you know, auth or, or authorization. Um, it's really kind of up to you to implement it. Typically, people will, um, you know, either have like a gateway that that handles all of that, or maybe you have some kind of like middleware that handles auth before that GraphQL query is executed. Um, so, at PayPal, we do that too. Um, You know, we use Node.js for all of our GraphQL APIs. And um, if you're familiar with Express-based kind of Node.js APIs, uh, we basically have, you know, middleware function that, you know, ensures you're authenticated and all of that before that query is executed. Uh, So it's really just up to you on how how you implement that. Um, But it's really done, you know, at an API kind of level. Like, GraphQL doesn't really kind of like handle off, out of the box for you.
0: So like, yeah, so the GraphQL would say, delete Robert Douglas and the API would say, access to not.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's like, you don't have access to <laughs> okay. do that.
0: Yep, yeah. Thank God. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> okay, so uh, we entitled this show uh, a little bit tongue in cheek. Uh, what did we title it? It's called, uh, does uh, does your API spark joy? Learn decluttering with GraphQL. So when I was reading about GraphQL again, uh, refreshing my memory of some of its nice attributes, it really it really seems to me like uh, it, it it improves the experience of working with data from from the client side. Okay, so data as we know can be a mess, a giant mess. Data like things in your house tend to accumulate over time. It's like all those letters you have from the eighties, maybe you guys not, but me letters I have from the eighties, you know, in a box somewhere that have like been transported with me. Now that's like data that I could query at some point, but it's basically just probably cluttering won't. everything. But I probably won't, right? But I might, but I might. So it, it, do you think that Mark, do you think that
2: analogy is good decluttering your API? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, so typically companies will have you know existing APIs and databases. Uh, PayPal is a lot of them, hundreds. Um, and yeah, I mean, not all of them are perfect, of course. There's like API standards, but I've seen some crazy APIs, like ones that rather than return a boolean, it returns like a string on or off. That's uh, crazy. Um, but anyways, like GraphQL is a really good way uh, to put like a facade in front of that. So all of your you know, UI developers at your company have probably heard of GraphQL. Probably really want it. Um, it's basically a really nice way to, you know, query for data and, and kind of hide the mess. So, I mean, you you could create a facade with REST, but you know, we found that GraphQL has a lot of really nice, you know, developer experience benefits and product productivity benefits and things like that. Uh, we could get into that in a second. So, Shruti, you've been at PayPal three years. You said, yeah. And
0: when you got there, was GraphQL in place already implemented?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. So when I got to the team, we uh, had already decided that we were going to use GraphQL. Um, And we started, we were one of the very first few teams who started adopting GraphQL. Um, Mark was the person who was pioneering GraphQL at like, the entire company level. And all of our teams were independently starting to adopt GraphQL. Um, so I, my team was one of the first few ones who started adopting GraphQL, both on the client level and the and the API level. Um, it was a bit of a challenge because not a lot of work had been done on the client side. And most of the work was uh, most of the apps were using Apollo. And there weren't very many alternatives as well. Um, yeah, so it was, it was interesting to learn GraphQL Three years ago, I think we're in a lot different, much different space today than we were three years ago. There's a lot been that da- been done in the last three years.
0: So you mentioned a very important term along the way, Apollo. Uh, I think it would be very worthwhile to get into what is Apollo and where does it fit into this picture.
1: Yeah, so Apollo is a is a company uh, based in San Francisco, but they've they've been building tools for GraphQL. Uh, so they have Apollo client for uh, uh, for building or like for consuming GraphQL API on the client side, and then they have Apollo server for building a GraphQL API on the server side. It's one of the very popular tools that's out there, and they have a lot of uh, good resources and documentation. Um, they put a, a big conference every year, Apollo GraphQL Summit, which is where most of our GraphQL engineers go and give a talk as well. So it's, it's a really great tool. Um, it's, been, it's, it's very popular in, in the GraphQL world. A lot of apps use Apollo GraphQL, Apollo client on the server and on the client, and for making their gateway layers as well.
0: Can the Apollo server component be thought of uh, as the API gateway in a way? Is that a fair thought comparison?
2: Yeah, I think I would. I would say so. Uh, Well, so they have a lot of a lot of different tools, like for you know consistent error handling and you know different hooks that allow you to kind of instrument your API and things like that. So we definitely leverage all of that. Um, But they also have some you know enterprise tools too, uh, which is really good because what happened at PayPal was like GraphQL really blew up, and you know basically every domain team has their own graph. Uh, So like checkout, we have our own like identity has their own user, things like that. Uh, But there's a lot of overlap, as you can imagine, like we all have basic ways to fetch user information and, you know, credit card details and things like that that we'll need for, you know, a typical like PayPal app. Uh, But a lot of duplication right now, a lot of graphs. And so Apollo has some pretty cool tools to merge all that together. So um, for anybody listening, if you go look up you know, schema federation or, um, you know, federated graphs or anything like that. Apollo, you know, is really the thought leader in this space. They they take all these graphs and find a great way to merge them uh, with really thinking about, you know, separation of concerns so that teams aren't kind of stepping on each other. And, you know, they've really solved this problem for how, you know, large companies implement kind of a single graph. Um, so yeah, Apollo has just a ton of different tools. Uh, Yeah, we're, we're we're using all of them right now. So do you ever
0: really do GraphQL without Apollo or are the two some way synonymous?
2: I'd say at PayPal, we're all in on um, Apollo because we, you know, we use node for our APIs. Uh, There are some teams using Java for GraphQL, but not, not so much yet. I think it's just beginning. Um, But there's a company that uh, PayPal acquired a while ago named Braintree. Um, they, they actually have a public GraphQL API that merchants use and that's all written in Java. It doesn't use Apollo. Um, but yeah, I, you know, the really nice thing with GraphQL is you can stitch these APIs together so they could be written in any kind of language and, um, yeah, kind of behind the scenes, it's called like schema introspection, but it's basically like you could, you could grab another GraphQL API schema like you could could request it and you could merge these things together and do some interesting things. Um, So even though Braintree's API is in Java and ours are in Node, uh, you know, they could merge together and interact together, um, you know, really nicely. Doesn't really matter the technology. It sounds like Braintree, oh, sorry, Uh, go ahead Shruti.
1: I was going to add one cool thing about uh, Apollo and just like the JavaScript space is like Apollo is one of the tools to implement GraphQL uh, with JavaScript. There are other tools as well, but Apollo is one of the most common ones. Oftentimes people confuse that Apollo and GraphQL are synonyms, but uh, it's actually one of the most popular tools used to implement GraphQL on the server side and the client side.
0: Okay, cool. So Shruti, back to your experience coming to PayPal. I imagine that when uh, a team wants to implement something like GraphQL and they're hoping for a better developer experience, more order uh, you know cleaner interface that it's like a, an episode of Mary Kondo right where you're like looking into all of the drawers, you know you, the drawers of your data and like oh check out <gasps> Ooh, users, ah, okay, what do we got there? You know, when was the last time we touched that? Ew, ah, right? <laughs> so what was it like that? Could you Could you have like, you know, were you like touching each API and see if it sparks joy? <laughs> Can you describe that at all? What was it like?
1: Yeah, really good uh, image. Uh, it reminds me of Marie Kondo episodes. <laughs> um, so basically, when we started with GraphQL in my team, I will specifically talk about the team that we started adopting GraphQL, and in. Uh, we had, I think, five different APIs, and we were looking at uh, one of the problems that we were facing with those APIs was that they were really slow, um, and. We were not using 100% of the data that it was sending. So because we had five APIs, we were using one of them 100%. But then the other ones, we were just using a few fields of them. So we looked at the fields that we wanted to use, and we were like, "What if like we can combine these five APIs into one API, and then maybe just like extract that field, the one like let's say user field. We don't need the rest of the 50 fields that it sends. So that's kind of where the inspiration of GraphQL came in, because it was it acted as like an aggregator, like a gateway for us, and we could specifically pick and choose whichever field we wanted to send over so that's where we started putting GraphQL in like a like kind of like a orchestration layer.
0: Okay and one of the advantages that's very highly touted and publicized with GraphQL is that as a client you only get the data that you request instead of like You have a published API, you call the API with the parameters that it says you have to have, it gives you back a set response that's always the same way, maybe a list of users that you have to paginate over, right? And then you have to go in the client searching through, okay, Robert Douglas, where is he? D, D, ah! Got him, right? So like that can be laborious, not just time consuming, but also laborious for the client and developers who not only have to call the API, but then iterate over the data. I remember writing lots of client code that has like loops in the templating yeah. language <laughs> with if yeah. then else stuff going on it, right? So does GraphQL really solve that problem? Does, the, does it cut down on the, does it declutter it for the front, front end client developers?
1: Yeah, a uh, great question. So, uh, yeah, like we we say, GraphQL gives you exactly what you need and nothing more, right? So, like if you only requested user field, you only get that field, and that's a really great advantage for client implementations as well. Because, like you said, like you don't get that extra data, and you don't need to manage it. So, if you're only using the user field, you only get that user field, so you don't need to like take care of cleaning up the data on your client side. So, your client side code also declutters uh, a lot. With the help of GraphQL's implementation, and then I was also going to say, so if you're implementing it as an orchestration layer, you have the power to uh, because you specify the schema, which is all the fields that a client can request. You also have the power to filter out what fields you don't want to send out. So, like let's say your REST API was con- was giving you 50 fields, but your re- your client could only be interested in the 10 fields. So your schema could just be those 10 fields, and then rest of the 40 fields are uh, hidden from the the client.
0: I don't really fully understand what you mean when you say use it as an orchestration layer. Can you explain that to me?
1: So let's say that you've, you've got five different REST APIs and now you want to combine them under a GraphQL. So what you want is that your client should only see GraphQL APIs, but behind the scenes, you've got like this dirty table of all these like REST APIs which send you so much data. So you want to clean that up, right? So you put like a nice tablecloth on it. That tablecloth is a GraphQL layer.
0: <laughs> I'm looking under the tablecloth. It's still dirty down there.
1: <laughs> exactly. But nobody knows that because right, then... you put a tablecloth on it.
0: Okay, that makes sense to me. Thank you. Now, you mentioned that these API's were slow. Did GraphQL speed them up?
2: (laughs) Uh, I could I could take this one. Uh, Yeah, it's a I'd say it's a popular myth. You know, a lot of a lot of people think, oh, if I had GraphQL, it's gonna make everything magically faster. But really, it's only as fast as kind of that slowest API in the back end, because often you're putting GraphQL on top of existing stuff. So it's it's not really gonna be any faster than that slow stuff. Uh, but what, really what, what we've what, seen... Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. News flash. Sorry. Adding entire
0: <laughs> software layers doesn't make things faster.
2: <laughs> nope. <laughs> not really. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think early on when we were pitching GraphQL internally, um, I think you know, a lot of people got this idea that oh, it's gonna be faster, you know, you're only requesting, you know, certain fields and things like that. And and maybe it, it You know, it might be faster for let's say mobile clients, you know, rather than fetching big payloads, if they're kind of like slim, maybe you'd have a little bit of benefit there. Um, So there's not as many bytes going over like a slow connection. But um, yeah, in general, no, it's not really faster. It's kind of, you know, the same speed, but I'd say the benefits are around, you know, dev experience and productivity, which is tricky uh, to measure, right? Because like, internally at PayPal, you know, we're really pitching GraphQL, you know, to leadership and executives and stuff. And um, trying to measure productivity and experience, it's not as straightforward as performance. Uh, so that was that was a little tricky rolling that out, you know, trying to measure any kind of incremental like improvements with GraphQL. Uh, maybe with productivity, you know, if you kind of like ship uh, a project sooner, Um, we could measure it that way. That's something we did early on, but experience, uh, it's, it's a little difficult to measure, you know, we, we sent out some surveys and things like that, but didn't have a good before and after comparison, but what does your gut tell you though? Uh, it's better. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, it's great. Uh, you know, as a web developer, um, or, or, or just UI developer in general, You know, if you're talking to a bunch of different REST APIs, often, you know, you'll fetch these, like, bags of fields that are just, like, they return too much. And then you often have to, like, trace through in your code and figure out, like, okay, like, I'm fetching a user's first name. You know, where did that come from? You often have to go kind of sort through, like, many layers of code, like, models and different things like that to figure out, like, okay, like, which API has this come from? Um, but, but so the really cool thing with GraphQL, and especially with Apollo client, they make this nice, you know, you could have a UI component that, let's say it's a profile photo and a first name, like Hi mark, uh, in that component, you could specify like, okay, I want the extra small profile photo. You know, I want the width and the height, the URL, I want the first name. You could specify that little query right in your code, right alongside, you know, your UI code. So you could very easily see like, okay, yeah, that. The, the data comes from, um, basically these fields, uh, you don't have to go like trace through models, you know, mul- multiple layers of code to go figure out like which REST API that came from, you're not really dealing with a lot of endpoints, you're dealing with one, and you're asking for the fields that you want. So I'd say the dev experience as a UI developer, it's so good. Um, you just you just ask for these fields, and you could really co locate that data right next to your UI component, so that everything's all like in one space, you could debug code a lot easier. Um, It's just a really nice experience.
0: So Carlos M uh, brings up a suggestion or a comment, which actually crossed my mind when you were saying that, If, if all of a sudden all of the querying is being done in the interface, like, oh, I have a photo to display here, let's query all the stuff I need for that photo. And then like some other component over there is querying what it needs and some other component on screen three is, like, you know, querying what it needs. That's kind of like a really icky way to define what query you need to catch. Um, And and Shruti, I've actually seen a presentation by you on this topic. Is there like a place to store state or how do you store state so that like the, maybe the components draw on that directly? Uh, And how does that work? Like if if I'm specifying in the, the component, which, like data bits I need and I'm actually querying GraphQL, well, does that like have a cache or does it bypass a cache? What's the answer?
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, like for state uh, state management on your client itself, uh, you can use whatever state management you're using in your current client tab. So you can use Redux, um, you can use React hooks. Um, Apollo client also gives you some cl- uh, state as well that you can use to manage um, and One cool thing about Evolve client is that it also does caching for you. So if it's a repeated query, it will cache for you and give you the data back. And uh, to Carlos points, like some caching software can add a layer. That is a common strategy that a lot of people use. So if you have a a common query with the same fields that um, people are going to call for, then that is something that you can use as well. It's a part of the strategy you can use on the client side. So if the same query comes in, you get the data back. But that doesn't come is as it, part of GraphQL. It's something that you have okay. to implement.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. And thank you, Carlos, for asking the question as always, and anybody else out there who wants to ask questions have at it that it, you just use the comment or chat box that's right wherever you're watching this, which is great. Now. I have to pause for a moment because I realized that in my introduction, I, I missed an important point. I, I watched a couple of presentations from Shruti and I have noticed that she and I are alike. We both believe strongly that humor and tech belong together because tech should never be boring, <laughs> never. It's not boring, Agreed. but sometimes you need to sell it like it's not boring, right? So Shruti, you, you agree, right? You, like, you love humor in your presentations. I see it everywhere in everything you do. <laughs>
1: Yeah, agreed. I've got some uh, humorous <laughs> jokes here.
0: <laughs> can I can I put you on the spot, spot and ask for a dev joke or two? Sure. Or maybe we just maybe we just end GraphQL right now. And if the jokes are good, <laughs> we're going to do jokes all the way out. So what, what do you all, got for that's
1: plan. That sounds like a plan. Okay, so Mark and I are hosting a conference next week. So this one came to my mind. Um, why was nobody given food at the developer conference
0: why was nobody given food at the developer conference
1: and it had not, nothing to do with the budget
0: <laughs> and when there's nothing not because the organizers are utter cheapskates nope <laughs> okay great okay i give up why not
1: it was a serverless function
0: It was serverless, exactly. (laughs) I thought it was because they hadn't defined any consumers.
1: Oh. Mm.
0: That's
1: good.
0: (laughs) Is it? I'm not sure. (laughs) The the, the audience might be laughing, but we can't hear them. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Okay. I might come back for another dose of this great dev humor, so be ready. (laughs) Okay. So, what was the developer learning curve? at PayPal like? Now I assume that you guys hire amazing world-class engineers. Your software seems to always work and you make lots of money. So why not, right? So with all your great engineers and you've got office buildings full of them, uh, We you know, we talked about all the locations where PayPal is around the world, big company, lots of software, very critical mission, lots of great developers. What was the learning curve like?
1: Yeah, maybe I'll start with my experience and then Mark can share his. Um, so I started with the team that was uh, about to start using GraphQL. So we hadn't really implemented anything. So basically, we were starting from scratch. For me, the developer experience was uh, uh, well, the learning experience was kind of hard. Um, we there there are resources out there like Udemy has really bun- bunch of really good um, tutorials that I utilized, um, but. I think the 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 biggest thing that helped me was like looking at playground and looking at Graphical, which is uh, actually th- there are two similar tools um, and what they allow you to do is you can point it to your GraphQL API and then you can kind of like see everything that your GraphQL API offers and you can like click on a field to see what it is so like if it's user it'll define what user is. So it kind of gives you like uh, this documentation based approach to learning. And so I was looking at the GraphQL and uh, I was looking at this graphical tool and it was actually a public tool. I think I was fetching, I can't remember one of the public uh, GraphQL APIs. And so I would look at it. And then if I had to fire a query, I could like type it in, in the, in the left hand side of the tool. And then I would fire that query and I'll get the data back. So for me as a so somebody who was implementing GraphQL on the client side, it was really easy to see like how I should be implementing it. And so what I would do is like, I'll, uh, fire out a query I'll, or like i'll type out a query fire it and then i'll copy that exact query and put it in my code so it made it very easier for me to like first try it out and then like copy it and like add it to my code um but yeah like i think outside of paypal we uh there's tons of good resources um out there so if Parcello has written a, a good a book on GraphQL, it's called Learning GraphQL, which I found was really easy to understand the technicalities of GraphQL, like query and mutation resolver, how to add GraphQL on the server side, client side, which I would highly recommend. There's a bunch of great resources on Udemy as well that teach GraphQL in the language that you're interested in. So whether it's a node layer or whether it's a Java layer. So that's one of the interesting things. Um, Who was the author of
0: the book that you just mentioned?
1: That's Eve Parcello. I will write it down here in the private chat and maybe you can tweet it out. Eve you can Percello. do it right in the
0: public chat, right, right in the comments.
1: I actually don't have a Mark, type bar here.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, well then put it in the private chat. <laughs> uh, Mark, what do you have anything to add to the, you had maybe a broader overview um, being you know an engineering director. Um, how did the rest of the team uh,
2: handle that? Yeah, I'd say uh, the learning curve that people had to get through was kind of not thinking in terms of REST. You know, like a lot of people were used to building REST APIs, and you know, it was, it's it's kind of easy to take that knowledge and just apply it to GraphQL. So some examples there, um, like for example, whenever you let's say like create a user with REST, usually it has like these Hadios links, you call them. So like at the bottom of the you know response, it might include maybe some links to other types of uh, REST APIs. So like in REST, usually, that's how you discover or you kind of you, you find the next call. So for instance, like, if you create a user, you might get back links for, you know, updating or deleting that user, or fetching more details and things like that. So, um, you know, often people would say, Okay, well, I'm going to model these links and GraphQL, but actually, that doesn't make sense much. Um, so with GraphQL, you know, fields, um, well, yeah, your graph is basically a hierarchy, you know, so you have like, uh, mm. like, kind of parent fields, child fields, and they're all they're all connected. Um, and so rather than think about, you know, these hadios links, and rest, uh, really, it's just better to just leverage the graph. You know, if, if it makes sense for a user to be connected to, let's say, you know, their name or, or images, or maybe their credit cards or things like that. Uh, just make those links in the graph, and then allow people to kind of query uh, multiple levels deep. So let's say I want to fetch, you know, my name, but also my credit cards, it's, I I, I could combine that all into one query, I could split that into multiples. But I guess in general, you know, the advice is to kind of leverage the graph and ditch any kind of REST concepts of the past, where, you know, maybe you have links, or maybe you have IDs all over the place. Like in GraphQL, it probably doesn't make sense to have all these IDs, because um they're connected. Like just model it in, in your graph that way. Uh, so yeah, just educating people and, and trying to get them to kind of forget everything from rest. Um, yeah, that's that's probably you know the the learning curve that we had to get over.
0: Interesting. The very first job that I ever had as a programmer uh, was on a system that is still in use today in a, in a company in Bonn, Germany called Hype Software. And they, in, in, in 2000 and 2001, had a, uh, an X path based. Query that you would use in the templating language that also followed the object graph. And it was, it was really cool. You'd start out by like using a UML diagram to like make all your objects and draw the connections. And that would like uh, boilerplate and scaffolding the entire web application. And then from any template that you were in, you could use an XPath. So if I were on the homepage, I could say, get logged in user. And from get logged in user, I could say, get profile. Uh, image. And from uh, going back to the user, I could say, get purchases, and then I would iterate over those purchases and display them right there. And the I got very accustomed to thinking through the object model graph, if I want to get that data, I don't just go to the MySQL database and say, give me all PDF files belonging to user. I say, give me the user. Now get me the PDF files. Uh, so it's it's a little bit different. It's a two mentally a two step process. Is is that how you think as a GraphQL developer? And 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 how would you describe the query language itself expressively? Is it similar to other tools that you're familiar with?
1: I think, that, yeah, I think like what the the thought process you had behind that expat seems very similar to the thought process you'd have behind a GraphQL API. So you're like, let's say like you're building a library app, you've got like books, then you think of like, oh, so I've got books, like what are the fields that I need? So you need like title and name and author, and then the author itself could be like... Uh, could be one or two so you're thinking of like you're breaking down like whatever your app needs and you're breaking them down into fields and then you're thinking of like what the type of that fields would be so then you further simplify it you could make custom types like author itself could be a type and then you or or you say author is just a name so it's it's just a simple string so that's how you kind of like draw that mental model um and i think that's similar to how you were describing xpath as well so if you need users or you you need like books you would go to that field and then you'd query for like the name so you get all the books of that you'll get all the name of the books in the library so yeah i think i think it's similar um what was your second question because
0: with well with rest apis you don't really think about a graph you you poke at something like you poke at something to see what data it can give you and then you poke at other things until you've got all your data (laughs) right yeah
1: exactly you might
0: might do a join by getting like list of users from one api and then from the list of users filter through the ones that you want then do more calls to get their pdfs and their order histories but it's like you don't it's like give me a box of things to sort through and go through them, and then once I've got the ones I want, thrown away then then I do something else based on that. It's it's not quite the same as thinking of a path through a graph, really. I mean, it's, yeah, in one way it's the same, but in, a, in conceptually to me, it's a little different. It's like I beat yeah. on one thing till I get all the thing all the all the things that has to offer, then I see what I've got, then I go beat on whatever else I can beat on until I get the thing that I still need.
2: Yeah, that kind of reminds so, me of. So early on, um, you know, when we were building the first, you know, iteration of the checkout GraphQL API, uh, you know, we would ask the teams that are consuming it, we'd say like, Hey, like, you know, like what other UI logic, uh, you know, do you have, like when you're dealing with this data, are you filtering through it to find, I don't know, let's say like the primary credit card or something like that, or, you know, what kind of joins are you doing? So we would would actually ask be like, you know, like, are you actually getting everything you want? Or are you still still doing like extra kind of manipulation of that data? And so, yeah, sometimes we would find, okay, actually they are filtering through stuff still. Like GraphQL is still not doing its job. So uh, we would actually take that and kind of feed it back into the API. And, and basically we try to hoist all of that kind of data manipulation, whether it's like filtering, sorting, you know, joining, and and try to express that in the API so that other teams in the future could benefit. Um, so since then, we've tried to think about it in a generic way. So anytime there's lists of things now, whether it's like you know transactions or credit cards or images and things like that, we have you know nice filters over it now, so that you know kind of from day one people are able to filter, sort, and do all that stuff and get all that kind of logic out of their UI code, so that so that really they can be expressive with their queries. They could say you know I I, I want the ten most recent transactions uh, you know, of this type and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think early on, we were really trying to gather those requirements and make sure the API can do all those things.
0: Are there any other things that are different now than when you started, like lessons learned or have you adjusted anything mid course or along the way?
1: I think I'll I'll talk about a lessons learned so when we were building this graphql api um because we had uh we had uh, five different rest apis and one of them we were like building from scratch and so what we did was we wanted to have a graphql interface for our client um so what we did was one the one the API that we were building where we were completely building it from scratch and we kind of made that API as like our main API of the app. So everything that that API sends we would kind of mock that we would kind of like map that over in our GraphQL API and kind of like do like a one to one mapping of everything the REST API was sending. And um, if you have five different APIs and you are like putting. This GraphQL orchestration layer, it works really well because you're like filtering the data out and you're like only sending whatever the client needs. But then if you have a REST API and you're doing like a one-to-one mapping, the problem is that anytime you add a new field to the API, you also have to add it to your schema and then you have to also like fetch for it on your client. So you're like increasing the work for you if you're doing a one-to-one mapping. And then because you are fetching everything that the REST API gives you back, you're not really like getting the benefit of GraphQL, which is like the client only gets what it's asked for. Because basically you're basically sending everything that the REST API. So one lesson we learned is to not to do a one-to-one mapping of a REST API with a GraphQL API if it's if you're building on orchestration layer.
0: Cool. Anything else?
2: Uh yeah. Maybe one bit of advice. Uh like like I was saying earlier, GraphQL kind of exploded at PayPal. It's like a bunch of teams. Uh, we're doing this, so I'd say if, you know if you're deploying GraphQL at your company and you're like medium to large sized, uh, you know, make sure you figure out how you're going to handle errors, how you're going to instrument these APIs, how you're going to handle off and those things. Like, try to figure that out early. I'd say for us, it just grew too fast. Um, so for a while there, teams were, you know, handling off and errors and all that in just different ways. So it 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 actually. Wasn't great, uh, but you know, af- after the fact, you know, we spent some time on building some reusable libraries that really, you know, bring some consistency to that. But yeah, I'd say you know, if you're if you're pitching this to your company, like try to think about that stuff really, so you don't end up with a bunch of APIs that behave and look differently. Um, luckily, we went what back and fixed to- that. But yeah, what do I need to know about an-
0: error handling? Um, what's yeah. what's hard about it?
2: Uh well, I would say that's maybe one downside of GraphQL. There's no right way to do it. There's no like, published, like kind of like this is the way to handle errors. Actually, I, I see a lot of companies saying, you know, handling errors differently. Um, like, well, first off, like the error object in GraphQL. So like, if you're querying for a field, you either get a success or, or an error. Um, so if, if you don't get any data back, you're going to have this error object. It's not super expressive though, like you have basically like a name of the error and maybe a message field and that's it. Um, but you don't really know like what type of error that is. Is it like a validation error? Is it a fatal error? Um, so, so, you know, some companies are handling this in a different way, like um, basically where the client Defines in their query, they go, "Hey, I could handle validation errors, and I could handle fatal errors, and things like that." Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Just some some people. Well, okay, I, I would say as a community, like we're not super satisfied with the error object as it is. Like some people are adding extra fields, you know, that kind of describe what that error is, you know, or things like that. Um, but I'd say it's not really like a standard. So some companies deviate here. Um, I kind of wish. That, you know, as a community, we would uh, come up with some kind of a solution for error handling, and there was a little more consistency there. So, yeah, I mean, GraphQL has a lot of benefits, but sometimes there's some downsides that say error handling is one of them. There's no, like, published standard or way to do it, really.
1: Yeah, That makes me wonder. What...
2: Go ahead, Shruti.
1: I was going to add, so I think one of the things that's also different, like coming from a REST API is that when you get an error, it's still a 200 HTTP code, and which is very different because in a REST API, you'd expect it to be like 404 or whatever the error it should be. And so uh, coming from a REST world, it's like, oh, I'm getting a 200. Wait, do I have anything in my error object? So then you have to, like, dig deeper into your error object and see if you have, like, whatever error you're getting, like validation error or not. And then you have to parse that error object to find out what kind of error you're getting. So, like, the whole Error uh, handling system. It's uh, it's uh, basically like parsing of that error object on, by yourself. That's kind of the hard part. So what's
2: yeah, the government's? Sorry, Robert. Go ahead. Add one no, more no, thing. no. We'll get to that. Um, you, you, yeah, just 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 on that topic. Uh, so with status codes, you know, HTTP status codes, and and how everything's you know 200 by default. Uh, you know, that caused a lot of problems for us. Uh, you know, because our ops teams who are basically watching the site, make sure that nothing's down. Uh, they're like, hey, you know, you have an issue here, but it's reported as a 200, basically. Um, you know, they're they're losing visibility into our API if we're returning 200s. Um, and so it was difficult for us because, you know, we weren't able to ask them, oh, just look at the JSON response, like go parse the response and figure out if there's an errors array. Uh, they're just kind of like, no, like, you know, every other system at PayPal uses HTTP, like, why can't you? Um, I mean, there's there, actually, it's, it's an ops team, what were you expecting? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, kind of, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, so actually we deviated here. Uh, so, you know, our APIs, okay, like I'll do, although they return 200s and all that, there's actually this other type of status code that we use internally to specify, you know, the request was, you know, a fatal error or validation error. So luckily, we already had this in place where there's, you know, an HTTP status code, but also this other type of status code. Um, so, you know, we started using that other type of status code, and suddenly our ops teams were able to look at our APIs. But, um, you know, for companies that don't have other status codes, or you just rely on HTTP, like, it, it could be a problem for your ops people, because, you know, you just lose visibility of what's going on. And parsing JSON's not super efficient either. Like, you can't really have ops tools do that. Um, So yeah, error handling I'd say is maybe a rough spot with GraphQL, but uh, you know, a lot of companies kind of navigate their way through it. Like it's not a showstopper, it's just something you need to figure out and think about. So
0: I'd like to get into this a little bit more because uh, I'm just wondering like, is the HTTP error code actually even the right Layer to express something. I mean, the errors that I'm imagining you are talking about would be either like the query is malformed, or um, something broke in the backend and was temporarily unavailable, or the the query. You know, maybe, what, how do how do you even get an error? Let's start there. What's an example of these errors? These these magical, mysterious JSON-packed
2: errors. So there's definitely validation errors, for sure, where the you know, formed or you're requesting something that doesn't exist. Um, but in our case, sometimes it's, you know, you're querying for maybe a lot of stuff. And one of those things relies on some other internal API. And let's say it just timed out, or, you know, just couldn't be fetched. Uh, yeah, the difficulty with HTTP, right, it's it's either it's all successful, or all in error. But with GraphQL, it's like you're partially you're like requesting a lot of things, and it might be hitting a bunch of different services. And so it's like, okay, if one piece of data fails in that query, do you mark the whole thing as failed? Or do you just return 200 and use this like errors array that specifies what part failed? Um, so that's yeah, tricky. I, you know, at PayPal, we actually take, you know, if, if you're querying for, let's say 10 things, and there's kind of a validation error and a fatal error, let's say like a timeout or something we actually take the most severe error in there and kind of mark the whole thing as a failure, um, which, you know, isn't great either. It's kind of kind of strange because the UI, let's say, let's let's say that part that failed, let's say it's not a critical field. The UI is like, yeah, okay, it's, you know, the profile photo. If that doesn't show up, ah, oh, well, at least you could accept payments. Um, yeah, it, it, HTTP is maybe not the best way to model this either uh, is, is kind of what I wanted to say. It seems like an all or nothing yeah. thing.
0: Yeah, uh, seems like the protocol actually needs a a way to chain errors like somewhere five hops away from me, there was an error. I'm just passing that along. Here you go. Mm -hmm. Something like that. I don't know if there's anything like that out there. Um, What kind of governance model then does this GraphQL community have? Are you participants in the the upstream open source project in any way?
2: Uh, It's around the foundation. So yeah, it's just, you know, a bunch of board members from different companies that use GraphQL or have a stake in it. Uh, So we're more invested in, you know, uh, GraphQL long-term. So like this, you know, this group basically, um, you know, kind of organizes community events and like learning types of websites, training and things like that. Um, they, They don't really work on the specification, but I'd say they're like a governing body, like over the spec. So there's actually another group that, actively meets usually about every month and they iterate on the GraphQL spec itself. Um, so yeah, I think I was really involved with kind of the foundation. Um, and then I think, yeah, there's a couple people uh, who contribute to the GraphQL over HTTP spec. So all these problems we're talking about where it's like you're trying to use GraphQL, but over HTTP, like they're, they're the ones that are kind of navigating through those issues and working on this kind of sub spec.
0: What are the alternates? If you're not using GraphQL over HTTP?
2: Uh, I guess GRPC.
0: Actually, I don't really know.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, now in the, in the, in the prep minutes that we spent before the show started, Mark, you mentioned something about, um, how the focus of GraphQL when it's discussed is often the benefits to the client side, but that's not the whole story. What do you want to bring that topic up and explain what you meant?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. So with with uh, okay. So yeah, from an API developer's perspective, so let's say you're working on this GraphQL API. Um, you know, it it, it kind of starts to seem like yeah, I'm doing all this for my client's benefit. Um, but actually, there's some benefits for server side too. Uh, so the really cool thing with GraphQL that we've had at PayPal, it's we actually um, with every query we require the client to identify itself. So they usually pass in this custom header where it's like, you know, let's say I'm the checkout onboarding app or something. Um, So now all of a sudden, uh, all of these queries and actually all the fields within the queries are instrumented. So we know like what app or what use case requires it. And so it allows us to basically evolve our API over time. So uh, for example, if there's a part of your graph that, you know, you want to rename or shift or move to a different location, You can look at it and be like, okay, I know that this person or this group depends on it, so I'm going to go talk with them. Um, Or, hey, nobody uses this, so let's just delete it. You know, you have that confidence. But with REST, you don't. Like with REST, you know that someone queries your endpoint, but you have no idea what they're using. Um, You you don't really know, like, who they are, typically. Um, It might just be the ops team checking the HTTP code. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, But you still don't know, like, what... Use case or like what fields in that rest response they really depend on. Um, so yeah, with GraphQL it's been pretty cool because we're able to just delete stuff and rename it confidently. Um, so it's really cool as an API developer because you could kind of uh, clean that clutter, you know, back to like recondo type stuff. So yeah, and and your APIs will-, will spark joy. Yep. <laughs>
1: I think one more thing that we also had a trouble in our APIs where like we were adding all these versions and like whenever we would add a version, if a new client or or a new merchant had uh, integrated to it, they would probably lose the data that they had in a previous version so like maybe we introduced a breaking change or like maybe we added something new to the to the newer version that maybe older clients don't have so like there was this inconsistency between people who had integrated with the new version and then versus people who had integrated with the older version some people would have breaking change some people would have updates that we had pushed out but they didn't get it so like with GraphQL that was also a really cool thing because like it's in it's in one endpoint, so like whoever wants it can get it, and then whoever doesn't want it can just like remove the remove the uh, the, the query.
0: That makes sense. That makes perfect sense. I have another question, Shruti. Do you have another joke for us?
1: <laughs> okay. Um, all right. I I love this one. Um, how many developers does it take to change a light bulb?
0: How many developers does it take to change a light bulb? Hold hold on. The answer might be something like one to hold the light bulb and 100 of them to turn the ladder. I don't know. I don't know. What's the answer?
1: <laughs> None. It's a hardware problem. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Very good. Exactly. Good. I'm glad you i I'm glad you didn't say I mean you can express the same thing by just saying developers don't screw in light bulbs. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. And there goes the show, down the tubes. That's always where I bring it. Down the tubes. <laughs> so sage advice for any organization that wants to, is considering right now in this very moment, adopting GraphQL. Uh, they think that their similar, uh, situation might be similar to what you've described. They're unsure. They're teetering on the edge. Should I go? Should I do it? Should I yes or no? What? How do you wrap that up? What's your checklist, your like, if this, then that type of advice? Can you just summarize it?
1: I think um, from somebody who's uh, adopting GraphQL, I'll speak my uh, perspective and then maybe Mark can talk about somebody who's been advocating for GraphQL in a company level. So I think from somebody's perspective who's adopting GraphQL, I think it would be really good if there is a learning resource within the company itself. And that is both tutorials and uh, learning resources like blogs and stuff, but also company uh, specific resources. So maybe a GraphQL sample app, both for client side and server side, maybe a GraphQL sample API that people can query and use their playground or graphical apps to to see kind of like hands-on how GraphQL works. That would be really good. Uh, so that's a learning resource just from like a technical perspective, but also like learning resources that people can go and talk to. So maybe like a Slack group that is a that's like a community within the company itself where people can ask questions. Maybe there is a group of people who have already implemented GraphQL and that can kind of act as uh, uh, kind of guiding resources that other people can go and ask questions to. So I think from a team's perspective, when somebody's adopting GraphQL, it's really uh, I think it's really it would be really helpful to have these resources that that people can kind of go and ask questions to and also have like a technical, uh, technical list of resources people can learn from.
2: Yeah, and I, I wanted to add, uh, I think it's all about finding that good first project. Like, you know, we've had a lot of success with Teams uh, kind of near the edges of our stack, meaning, you know, web and mobile apps. So if you pick, you know, some kind of new project, Uh, let's say it's a website or mobile app or something like that. Uh, It's, it's also really good if they have a lot of AB experiments. Um, So if they have, yeah, just like lots of variations of the same experience. uh, Let's, you know, maybe two thirds. uh, Well, okay, so like, if you take all those experiments, all those variations, and if you think about the data that they require, a lot of them are going to have overlap. But um, yeah, if you pick, if you pick some where it's like, there's a lot in common, but there's still some differences between these AB experiments, I think you'll really see, you know, power graph QL, because um, they did really, you know, yeah, query for exactly ex- exactly the things you need. Um, yeah, and then, and then you can kind of make sense of like, Okay, this experiment uses these fields, this uses these. And when you kind of get rid of that experiment, let's say one of those passes one of those you decide to delete or or whatever later, you could really kind of continue to keep your queries nimble and small. So you don't have like big, giant responses and bags of fields. So I, I, uh, back to the beginning, web and mobile apps, um, something kind of near the edge of your stack and something that has like a lot of AB experimentation, I think that's a good first project for GraphQL. Then you could really start to see those benefits.
0: <laughs> um, it took me a while to figure out what Carlos is saying here, but he's actually commenting on the joke. <laughs> he's, he's like, Are you serious? No developers needed to change the light bulb. Somebody has to open the JIRA ticket.
1: And <laughs> then <laughs> the developer marks won't fix.
0: Exactly, another one, to, exactly. It's developers all the way and we can't get away from the developers. <laughs> Thanks, Carlos. Uh, are there any cases that are red flags where you just shouldn't use GraphQL?
2: Mm, for really, really, really simple apps, like let's say it's yeah. you know a really basic page or something like that, uh, it's probably overkill. I'd say that, like, yeah, pick something with a lot of, you know, experimentation, a lot of variations, pick something that, you know, requires a lot of data, like typically, I don't know, in checkout before we were using REST and just to paint the review page, it'd be eight different REST calls, pick something that has a bunch of calls, Um, something not super simple. Uh, Otherwise, it's kind of overkill, in my opinion. Right. So it's like, you
0: know, decluttering. If you don't have anything to begin with, then why declutter? Yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs)
0: All right. Well, I want to thank both of you uh, for taking the time from your day. to pause deploying all the code that you are certainly going to deploy in this hour on this beautiful Friday, if you hadn't been talking to me, uh, to come and talk to me about GraphQL. I think the audience has enjoyed it as well. We've got some positive feedback. Uh, and thank you all for listening, watching, uh, participating in the QA as you did. Um, I look forward to sharing something new next week, uh, when it's once again, the best day of the week to deploy your code, Deploy Friday. And with that, we're gonna say goodbye and sign off. Have a great weekend, everybody, bye.
2: Thank you, see you. Bye.